preaching from the passage that was just read. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. And if you'd like a Bible, mentioned there on the back table there, you can just feel free to grab one um, at any point. Um, the sense of smell is potent. Um, a smell, a scent, can evoke distant memories and powerful emotions. There's an aroma that, for me, always evokes um, envy, and it's the smell of charcoal lighter. When I'm walking through my neighborhood, when I'm walking down, you know, anywhere in the city, and I smell the smell of charcoal lighter, I know that somebody is having a better time than I am. Um, And listen, I'm a foodie. Like, I know, like, the best way to light charcoal is not to use charcoal lighter. Um... But that smell for me symbolizes freedom. It symbolizes feasting and being with friends and celebrating and not having to work at that moment. And so um, I smell charcoal lighter, and I know that somebody's having a good time. And I immediately become envious, and I wonder what I'm doing with my life. Why am I not lighting charcoal right now and cooking out in my yard with a bunch of friends? Um, Maybe other aromas do it for you. Scientists say that the human olfactories can detect one trillion distinct scents. Cinnamon, peppermint, apple pie, onions sautéed in butter, hops, the smell of a baby, the good smell of a baby. Um, fresh baked bread, fresh cut grass, which by the way, I don't, I don't get, I don't know why people love that smell. It just reminds me of allergies. Um, but I know people like it. Strawberries, cumin, we can evoke those smells. We can bring them to mind. Um, likewise, some smells are repulsive. Body odor, trash. Um, Lower State Street on a Friday night. Um, if you're visiting with us from out of town, Lower State Street is where the tourists hang out, usually. Um, so they're fair game to, uh, to make fun of. Um, and, you know, for parents, but before I was a parent, I never thought I would do this. I never imagined in years that I would be the type of person that would pick up a child and hold them up to my nose to see if there was a dirty diaper or not. Um, and, and when there is, it's repulsive. Um, you know, if we were to all close our eyes, which I won't ask you to do because we're on the West Coast and we're suspicious of anything like that, um, but if we were to all close our eyes right now, I could probably ask you, um, I could probably give you some words and they would evoke a smell for you. Um, I could say the word, Christmas, there's probably a smell, probably a fragrance that comes to mind, or Thanksgiving, or even the word home, there's probably a smell, um, an aroma that you attach to that. But what if we could attach a fragrance to Jesus? What if we could attach a fragrance to Christians? What would that smell like? What if we could put the church in a wine glass and swirl it around and stick our nose in 
what would be the tasting notes of the church? Would it be something that smelled like life? Or would it have the smell of death? In this passage, Paul says that Christians have an aroma in the world. And um, my question is, what do you think your neighbors would say if you asked them that question? Um, What does the church smell like? What is the fragrance of the church in the world? Um, Unfortunately, I think for many people in our culture, Christianity stinks. In fact, um, a guy named David Kinnaman, the president of Barna, a research uh, group, and a guy named Gabe Lyons, an evangelical leader, wrote a book called Unchristian. And in that book, it was the findings of their research. They went out into the world and they found people who were not Christians, but new Christians. And they said, what do you think? What do you associate with Christians? And, um, and it was an extensive research project. And what they found is that 16, for 16 to 29-year-olds, um, the top three words associated with Christians were anti-homosexual, and they, and they meant that not just in doctrine, but person to person, anti-homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical. Um, not very good words to be associated with the church. And if you're like me, maybe you're thinking, well, that's because a certain narrative has been portrayed. You know, we don't earn that. We didn't, that's not a fair perception of the church. But half of the people in this research said that that impression came not from the media, but from personal experience with those who claim to follow Jesus. And by the way, that research was done seven years ago. And I wonder, has it improved or has it gotten worse? And how should it be? What should be the fragrance of the church, the fragrance of Christ in the world? Um, How should it be? Well, Paul tells us that we have the aroma of Christ, and that is the fragrance both of death and the fragrance of life. And so we're going to look at what he means by those two things, the fragrance of death and the fragrance of life. And as we do, let me pray for us. Father, we need you to help us understand your word. So we ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us and illumine your words for us. Lord, give us hearts that receive your word gladly. And Lord, would you make us more like Jesus through this word? Would you give us the aroma of Christ? And would that be a sweet-smelling aroma in this world so that your name would be exalted, and that many would worship you because of it. Lord, may the words of my mouth here this morning and the meditations of all of our hearts together be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So what does Paul mean, the fragrance of death? Um, well, I think there are two ways to have the fragrance of death, and one of them is the right way. Um, but first, I want to just point to a couple of verses that began our passage. They may seem a little odd, They may not seem to have a lot to do with this, um, but I'm going to mention them. I'm just not going to focus on them, but I I think it's worth mentioning. Um, Verses 12 and 13, Paul lets us know that he's talking about the mission of God because he says that he is um, going to preach the gospel. And if you notice in those verses, he says, I was going to go to one place, but I couldn't 
you know, and God actually opened me, opened a door for me there um, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel. But I, I wasn't at rest. My heart was not at rest because I was anxious about my brother Titus. And so um, he went somewhere else. So just kind of ponder that later. Um, put that in your pipe and sort of, what, what does it mean that God opened a door for Paul and he didn't go through it? because he was anxious about his brother, Titus. And, and I think the reason why he could do that, um, may, that may challenge how we see, you know, God opened a door for me a little bit. Because um, for Paul, he believed that the mission of God went with him everywhere he went. So he could go through one door or he'd go through another door. And either way, he would go to preach the good news of Jesus so we can ponder that at another time. Um, but we do know that Paul is deeply committed to his relationships, and he's deeply committed to the mission of God. Now in verse 14, Paul says, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Now that, that phrase, even as you hear it, just sounds great, right? He leads us in triumphant procession. He he spreads the fragrance of Christ through us everywhere. Um, and, and that sounds great, I think, because we love triumph. We love to triumph. Um, no one loves defeat. We love victory. Um, even if it's like a, an intramural kickball game, we love to win. We want to be on the winning side. And so we hear these words triumph, and we hear procession, and we think, that sounds like a victory parade. I want to be a part of that. Um, but I think, you know, to understand what this has to do with death, we have to look at a little bit of the history of what Paul is talking about here. See, um, it's through this triumph that we spread the fragrance of Christ everywhere. And um, a Roman triumph was a Roman military parade. So think of every parade that you've been to. Um, instead of commercial victory, that that parade represents, um, think of military victory. What, what they would do is whenever a, a general had achieved a decisive victory where he had vanquished his enemy, the Senate would declare a triumph. And what they meant is that there would be this military parade that would take this route through the city, and, and it would be a, like a victory lap for the general. And there would be incense that went through the streets and people would wave incense so that you'd smell the smell of victory. And then there would be this, this host of the captive army, the captives, the prisoners of war. And ideally, if, if he survived, the defeated king would be paraded through the streets, humiliated, to show that he had lost the battle. And then there would be like paintings commissioned for the event that would show the battle scene, and they would parade these paintings through, and even 3D floats um, that, you know, this is kind of the origin of the Rose Parade here, um, but instead of being flowers, it was, um, you know, bloody battle scenes on these floats to show people what had happened, to show the victory on the battlefield. And then the general would, would parade through the street in a chariot drawn by four horses. 
And he would have the, the laurel wreath of victory on his head. And he would wear a cape and red boots to show that his boots had trodden in blood in victory. And he would go through the streets and the people would, would applaud his victory. And behind him, his sons and his officers were riding on horseback. And then at the tail end of this triumph, there would be oxen, white, usually white oxen, um, which would be sacrificed to the gods at the end of the triumph. And although many people in the Roman Empire had never witnessed a triumph, they would all have known about it because they memorialized the triumph on their coins and on their art and their frescoes, um, and, and they were spread throughout the empire. Everyone knew what a triumph was. Um, and sometimes these, these triumphs were slow. It wasn't like an afternoon thing. Sometimes these triumphs would last for days, and there would be feasting, and people would put food out for everyone in the parade to eat as they went by. And Paul says that Christ leads us in a triumphal procession. And there's good news and bad news here. The good news is that we know that Christ is victorious over his enemies. And the enemies of Christ are sin, death, and the evil one. And so when Paul says that, that Christ leads us in triumphal procession, he's saying that Christ is the victorious one. And he's dressed not in, in boots of red, the blood of his enemies. He's dressed in, in his own blood. He shed his own blood. That was the way he achieved victory for his enemies. And the fact that he leads us, though, is, is the bad news. Um, see, we are not the objects. Sorry, we're not the subjects of the triumphal procession. We're the objects. What Paul is saying is that we're not the generals riding on horseback. We're actually the captives. We are the conquered. We are the ones who um, are paraded through the streets. And the reason they did this to the prisoners of war um, was not to you know, give them a party. They were actually led to their execution. So at the end of this parade, the prisoners would be executed in front of the people. And what Paul is saying is that if you belong to Christ, then you are his spoils of war. You are captive. This is actually one of Paul's favorite titles for himself, a slave of God. And so he's saying that, that we actually, as those who profess Christ, we actually have the fragrance of death. That that incense, though it's the fragrance of victory for some, is also the fragrance of death for the captives. And we are the captives because we too have been conquered by Jesus. Not in military might, but by him laying down his life for us. We've been conquered in love. That's what Romans 8 is about. We are more than conquerors. That, that passage that we love to, to celebrate we're conquerors. Why? We're conquerors over life and death and angels and demons and famine and, and disasters, all these things. Why are we conquerors? Because none of those things can take away the love of God for those who are in Christ. So to be conquered by Christ means that we die in Christ. We take up our cross. 
See, this is not the rally cry like we love to hear. You know, give me freedom. This is Jesus saying, take up your cross and follow me to be executed. Because that's where I went. And I call all who, who come to me, I call them to die. So that they may live again. So that they may be resurrected in me. And so, because of that, Jesus had the aroma of death, the aroma of humiliation. I mean, think about it. To, to tell Roman citizens, we worship a man that Rome crucified. That's, that's somewhat humiliating. And it will inevitably mean that we have the fragrance of death. Um, and there's a way that the gospel will inevitably, will inevitably have the fragrance of death to some people. And I think it's because um, in our culture, you know, Paul is reminding us the cr- that the cross is the center of the doctrine of Christianity. That we are saved through death, through the death of Jesus. And I think in our culture, um, there's a way in which the gospel smells like death. Because we, in our culture, do everything we can to avoid crosses. We do everything we can to avoid pain and suffering and humiliation. We don't even like to think about death, physical death or any death. Um, and, and it smells like death. The gospel smells like death because it's not that triumphant call of glory. It's the call to humility It's the call to love others, to consider others more important than yourself. Um, And it's the the smell of the death of self. You know, in our culture, um, you know, I think sometimes the church smells like death. This is the death of my weekend. This is the death of my money, my financial autonomy. This is the death of time, the death of my sex life, the death of, ultimately, my, my, my self-autonomy, my freedom to rule my life. You know, our culture um, is all about freedom, right? It's one of our biggest values. No matter where you are on the political spectrum, you're, we either say, you know, I don't want the government telling me what to do, or we say, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Um, we love freedom, we say, you know, we, we fly the flag, don't tread on me. There's one in my neighborhood around the corner from my house. We say, give me freedom, give me liberty, or give me death. We don't want to be captives. We say, live free or die. So for the call of Jesus to, to say, pick up your cross and follow me, die to yourself, deny yourself, and your ability to rule yourself, give up your own autonomy and follow Jesus, that can often be the fragrance of death. We like to live uninhibited by anyone else. We want to define ourselves, and we want to rule ourselves. And so the gospel can smell like death. Uh, The gospel of Jesus will be a fragrance of death in a world that has lived in rebellion to God. And I think that's one of the reasons why the church has always been persecuted around the world. What is it about a religion that says, love God and love your neighbor? 
that invites persecution. I've recently been reading about the persecution of Christians in Japan that lasted for over 200 years. Um, Maybe you saw the movie Silence or read the novel. Um, The way that they would would determine who is a Christian to persecute is that they created a, a, a woodcut or a metal engraving of the image of Jesus. And they said, will you tread on this image of Jesus? And those who wouldn't were known to be Christians and they were brutally tortured and persecuted. Why is it that Christians are persecuted? I think it's because at the core of our gospel, we live for a king that is not of this world. We don't live for a political kingdom. We live under the lordship of Christ, and that is a threat to every other king. Every other king knows that that is a threat to their authority. And so we are the fragrance of death to many people because we symbolize the death of autonomy. We're fragrance of death to kings because we, we worship the true king. Um, we're the fragrance of death because Jesus died on a cross. And, and we're actually, because of that, um, we can accept suffering as part of God's call, part of our cross to bear. Um, but there's another reason we have the aroma of death. And, um, and I think this is the wrong way. You know, I'm reminded of the, the quote that's attributed to Gandhi. Um, at this point, I just assume that every good quote that is attributed to someone, like they didn't actually ever say it. Um, because every quote that I love, I find out like they didn't actually say that, but it's attributed to them. So maybe he said this. He said something like this. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. See, I think we can have the fragrance of death because we are Christ-like, but we can also have the fragrance of death when we live in ways that are contrary to the way of Jesus. And really, when you think of, um, of the way that happens most often, it's through our self-righteousness. And self-righteousness actually is antithetical to the gospel. In Jesus' ministry, who were the people that he rebuked the strongest? Jesus didn't like hypocrites either. Go back and read Matthew 23 And you'll see this long list of woes. And you may think, that doesn't sound like Jesus, but it is. And he says, woe to you, hypocrites. Why does Jesus not like hypocrites? It's because they see themselves as righteous in themselves. It's their self-righteousness. And self-righteousness stinks. Um, And sometimes I believe that we have made the gospel stink. It's when we live out of judgment and law rather than grace. And when we do that, we actually betray the gospel. The gospel that saved us. When we live out of judgment, we say, when we live out of our own self-righteousness, we're proclaiming the opposite of the gospel because the gospel says you're saved not because of works that you've done in righteousness, but because of the grace and mercy of the Lord. And so self-righteousness stank to Jesus and it stinks in our world today. And there's sometimes I believe when we um, we are afraid of the culture, 
we're afraid of the world around us, and we, we erect tribes, and we say there's us versus them, and if I can just have power over my enemy, then I'll be safe. And I think that um, actually creates more of the smell of death. We will already have the fragrance of death, but there are times when in our self-righteousness and our self-protection, we actually have the fragrance of death that's unlike Christ. You know, I'm, I'm guilty of this. I remember when I was a new believer um, in high school, I grew up in a small town in the Bible Belt where everyone was a Christian. Or at least everyone said they were Christian. What they meant by that is, I'm not Jewish, I'm not an atheist, I'm not a Muslim, I'm a Christian. And yet, um, very few actually seem to follow Jesus. But um, there were a couple of sisters, twin sisters, in my school who were atheists. And those of us who claimed to follow Jesus hounded those sisters over and over and over again with our judgment. I remember someone at my church giving me a, a stack of Christian tracts to share the gospel. And I thought, if one track is good, a hundred must be better. And I, I, put all, I put them in their backpacks. A hundred tracks. You're the only two people I know that need the gospel. So here they are. And I, made, I think I actually made the gospel stink. Because it was my judgment and my self-righteousness that I was proclaiming, not the grace and mercy of the Lord. And years later, those two sisters actually transferred to my college, and I had to reckon with that, that I had hurt them and hurt the name of Jesus. So in some ways, I believe there is a warning here for us to examine our actions and our hearts to see if there's any self-righteousness in us, to see if there's any judgment in us, and to purge that so that it's the gospel that offends and not us. It's so that it's a threat to self-autonomy that offends and not the judgmentalism and hypocrisy of the church. And ask yourself if there are ways that we have become the aroma of death in our communities, in our workplaces, in our families. Are there places where we have even judged our own spouses, our own children, where we give them the law instead of grace? And if we do, we need to re-examine our hearts and our actions to see if we are offending because of the grace of God or we are offending because of our own self-righteousness. But Paul also says that we have the fragrance of life. What does that mean? What does the fragrance of life smell like? Is it charcoal lighter on a summer day? Is it cinnamon during the month of December or the month of November if you're one of those people that associate cinnamon with Thanksgiving instead of Christmas. Uh, what is the fragrance of life? Well, Paul tells us um, that the fragrance of life is the aroma of Christ. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, a fragrance from life to life. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And he goes on to say, who is sufficient 
for these things. And he says it's only that we are speaking in Christ. He's pointing us back to the person of Jesus and saying we must have the aroma of life in this world. And if you want to learn how to do that, you need to have an apprenticeship. Enroll your life in in an apprenticeship to the Lord Jesus. Um, What was the aroma of Christ in his world? Well, we know from reading the Gospels um, that Christ was called the friend of sinners. He seemed to have been loved by those on the margins, loved by those who were suffering, loved by those who were rebellious, and hated by the self-righteous. And so the aroma of Christ, the tasting notes of Christ, is grace and mercy. It's, It's love. It's for love of sinners that Christ came into this world and suffered on the cross and died on the cross Why? For love of sinners, not for love of the righteous. He says, I came for the sick, not the healthy, for the unrighteous. Christ loves sinners. He has compassion on sinners. That means if you are a Christian, if you are loved by Christ, it's not because you're good. It's actually because you're a sinner and he had mercy on you and compassion on you. The aroma of Christ, the aroma of the Christian should be the aroma of grace. And it should be a breath of fresh air to the world of law. Because whether you're a Christian or not, you have laws that you judge others by. Laws that probably you can't even keep. And the the smell of grace is fresh air. In this world. See, it's those, we are those who are captive, who are being led in that triumphal procession, but we're not executed at the end of it. We're not on display um, to be, um, to, to, to let the world see our death. It's actually that through dying to self, it's through the cross of Christ that we are saved. And so at the end of that triumphant procession, we enter into the kingdom of Christ, the new kingdom. And so I think when we have the aroma of Christ, it's not just that we, we show the aroma of grace, that we say you can be saved by believing in Jesus through no works of your own, but only because of his grace, only through faith alone. But we also show forth that this long road that we are on, this march, this triumphal procession is actually marching towards a new kingdom. And it's the kingdom that you've always longed for. It's the new heavens and the new earth. It's, it's the reversal of the curse. And I think that is the aroma of life to those who are perishing, who know that no relationship or a career or hobby or community in this life is satisfied, that there must be something more. There must be something outside of what I can see and experience. And we tell them that there is a king who will bring his kingdom and roll back the curse, and in his kingdom there will be no death, there will be no sin, there will be no evil. All you have to do is join in and let him conquer you by his love. And when we do that, 
When we become friends of sinners like Jesus, we proclaim this kingdom that is ever-growing in the world, this kingdom that is promised to us uh, through faith in Jesus. And, uh, and we proclaim it that, that this kingdom um, is not achieved through the sword, but it's achieved through love, the love of Jesus. And so as we do that, we proclaim this kingdom with acts of love and service to our neighbors, not out of fear of our enemies, but out of love for our enemies. We love them into the kingdom. We love our enemies into the kingdom. That's the way we proclaim the gospel. And if we proclaim the gospel in that way, it may become the aroma of Christ, the fragrance of life to those who are being saved. Do you remember the story of the big bad wolf and the three little pigs? You know, the three little pigs, you know, the, the, the moral of that story is build a strong house, defend yourself, and, and put in the work to build the, the strongest house so you'll be protected from them, whoever, whoever them is in the narrative. From your enemies, you'll be protected from your enemies. Um, and the guy, the pig who built his house out of rocks was the one, who, or out of bricks, is the one who was safe. So if you want to be safe from your enemies, get in this bunker mentality and build a strong house. Well, years ago, um, a Greek man named Eugene Trevisas uh, wrote a book called The Three Little Wolves and the Big Bad Pig. Um, someone gave this to my children. I'd never heard of it before. But in this story, the, the roles are reversed. It's an upside-down story. Um, and the three little wolves are warned about the big bad pig. And so they build a strong house. They build a house out of bricks. They didn't mess with straw and sticks. They built their house out of bricks. Um, and the big, big bad pig came and huffed and puffed and couldn't blow down the house of bricks. But the big bad pig didn't get his name um, for giving up. He gave, got his name because he was big and bad. So what did he do? He went and got a sledgehammer and he tore the house down. <laughs> um, and then, um, you know, here's a, here's a picture of that, of that pig, you know? Sledgehammer to the house. And the wolves, you know, escaped with their lives. And they said, hey, we've got to get a bigger house. So then they, they found some, you know, a concrete mixer, and, um, and they built this house of concrete, and it was much stronger than the house of bricks. And the big bad pig came and huffed and puffed and tried to blow the house down, and he couldn't. So he went and got a pneumatic drill, a jackhammer, and he tore the house down because he was a big bad pig after all. So then the wolf said, we've got to get an even stronger house. So they got some armor plates and iron bars and barbed wire and heavy metal padlocks and um, plexiglass and reinforced steel chains. And they created this like amazing bunker, this safe house that, that couldn't possibly be destroyed with video surveillance um, to you know, alarm systems to protect against the pig. So the pig came to their house and he huffed and puffed and he couldn't blow the house down. But um, he wasn't big and bad for nothing. He went and got some dynamite and... Um, the house blew up, and the wolves 
ran away with their tails scorched. And um, they said, maybe we've been doing this all wrong. Something must be wrong with our building materials. We keep getting bigger, stronger materials, and it's not working. So they saw a flamingo walking by with a wheelbarrow full of flowers. And they said, would you give us some flowers? And they built their house out of flowers. And uh, the next day, the big pig came crawling down the road, and he saw this house made of flowers. And he said, I'm going to huff and puff and blow your house down. And as he huffed, something happened. He smelled the smell of flowers. He smelled the fragrance. And, um, and something changed. It was a fantastic smell, he said. And he took another breath, and another, and another, and he began to sniff. And, um, and he became tender. And he realized how bad that he had become. And right then and there, he decided to be a good pig. And the wolves were skeptical, obviously. Did he really change? Um, and the pig started to dance. And they said, why don't we invite the pig in? Let's bring him in. And the story ends with the pig sitting on the couch at the wolf's house making flowers. I think that's the way of Christ. It's the way of Christ to conquer his enemies, not out of might, but out of love. And that's the way of Christians. That's the way of the church. Not to, to bunker down. There's a, there's a time and a place to pursue safety. But to live in such a way as to, to give the fragrance of grace and mercy as those who have received grace and mercy not our own good works, not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ portrayed to the world and done out of acts of service and love. That's the way of Christ, to love his enemies into the kingdom. And that's the way of the church, to love the world into the kingdom, to become a blessing because we have been blessed. That's the ethic of the New Testament. Forgive, love, show mercy as you have been forgiven, as you have been loved, as you have received mercy. Why do you judge? Why do you boast as if you had not received? Go out into the world and love your enemies, love your neighbors, love one another, and they will know you by your love. Um, may that be true of us. May we proclaim not the false gospel of be like me, do like me, but the true gospel of grace and mercy. May we love our enemies and may we love them into the kingdom. Amen.